Thank you, folks, for, for being here. So we are thinking about uh, early and end-of-life issues. Just to say, and I've, I've shown this the last couple of mornings, if you've been here, who I am, so a little bit of who I am and where I approach these issues from. I am a medical doctor by training and by experience, but not currently practicing. So as I said on Wednesday, don't ask me for advice on that. I'm not up to date and uh, not registered anymore even, but uh, that is my background. I also have a bit of a background in medical genetics. Uh, and then uh, after medicine, moved into pastoral work across cultures with the Chinese community in Northern Ireland, uh, and then in same culture church settings. Uh, but more recently then have moved into teaching theology in Belfast Bible College uh, and training people for ministry. But also a husband, a father, I suppose, a son, uh, a family member in all of the relationships that that brings with it. And so these issues are not just theoretical issues for any of us. They are pastoral. Uh, they're also issues that we face in our own relationships and lives. So I want to acknowledge that. And uh, just as, as David said, Catherine, where did you nibble? Catherine's there, who's from our pastoral support team. And Willie, or James, maybe Willie's not here, but James is there as well, who's also in that team. They would be very happy to chat with you, pray with you afterwards. I'll also be very happy to, to chat with you. Now, I made a rash promise yesterday and said that I would stick to time today, so I better get on with things. And I want to have some time for questions and answers too before the end. Um, so please do be thinking about that. Now, uh, this is the grid that I introduced on Wednesday, and I'm not going to go over that in detail. If you were here, you might have heard a bit about that. If not, you can get that seminar recording. It's based on a verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, but not just that one verse. The whole of what Peter says in that short letter, I think, is captured in some ways on, on this diagram. And what it's expressing is that as we face an increasingly confused or muddled world, as Christians, we have to think clearly, soberly. And sober thinking, clear thinking, includes four dimensions. The fear of God, the recognition that God is sovereign, that God is holy, that, that he is righteous, and all, that that, all the wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord, from putting God in his, well, not that we put him in his place, but recognizing the place that he is in uh, as sovereign. And of course, how he invites us as father into a loving relationship with him. But obedience and faithfulness to God is right at the foundation. And then love for the brotherhood, our brothers and sisters, the church, how we love one another and what that means. And how unity, of course, comes from the spirit and the truth as we fear God together. And then how we honor everyone and honor the emperor. And I explained how honor is a very powerful, a strong word. It's a much stronger word than some of the other words that go around in our culture. Tolerate. I mean, who wants to be tolerated? I'll put up with you. Respect sounds a lot better, but respect has to include appreciation for what somebody stands for or what they do. And there are some attitudes, and even our society still says that, that aren't worthy of respect. But as a Christian, I'm committed to honoring every person because they are loved by God, created by him, and Christ died for them. So the honor that we show to people, even when we don't agree with them, which is very profound, of course, that we don't approve of what they believe or what they do, but we honor them. We treat them with such value because we know that they belong to God. And then honoring the authorities. 
And of course, then the four S words there, which Peter uses, which explain some of the tensions that arise. We fear God and we honor everyone, but the way we show that is by speaking truth. You don't honor people by colluding in in lies or deception, but actually by speaking God's truth, revealing who he is. But we also serve people in love because we honor them. And of course, that is where we begin with that is serving each other in the church. And then that overflows into how we serve in society as we support one another in doing that. We shape culture, but we talked about how in First Peter that culture is one of humility. So we don't come at the world saying, we've got all the answers, we're brilliant. We come as people who testify to a great Savior and a great Lord. So when we speak on these issues, we're not saying we're superior to you in our understanding. We don't have struggles like you do. We actually say, no, we too face the same struggles and challenges, but we have a Savior, a Lord, Let me tell you about Jesus. Uh, And so we seek to shape culture in humility. And that includes the other S word, the one that Peter really uses is submission. So listen to Wednesday if you want to hear more about that. But there's also going to be points of suffering. Challenges where we lose out, where we find ourselves on the receiving end of ridicule. Perhaps maybe what I've called professional martyrdom, feeling ourselves squeezed out of certain spaces. And we have to recognize that and accept that. Whenever fearing God sets us in conflict with the authorities, we honor the authorities, we submit to them, but we don't have to agree with them or obey them in every situation. And that will cause loss at times. So that's the general approach that we're taking. And this idea of sober-mindedness in First Peter, Peter uses the word three times. And sober-mindedness, clear thinking, having a, a clear mind includes three things. Being aware at the bottom of the screen. Aware that behind these issues there is a spiritual dynamic. Aware that Satan is prowling around. He wants to devour people. That there is deception in the world. That truth matters. That these conflicts within us mirror a a very real spiritual conflict. So aware of the issues in our world and where they come from. And then faithful, the the middle verse says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. So clear thinking so that you can control your own desires and feelings and emotions and be faithful to God. And then at the top, being ready for action. Not enough that we know what we believe, but how do we engage with the world? How do we engage with people on some of these issues? Now, that's aware, faithful, ready. That's the order that we're going to go in. So let's be aware of the issues. Let's be faithful in our own speech about it and in our own lifestyle. And let's be ready for action. So clarifying the issues. When it comes to early life and end of life ethics, these are constantly in our headlines, I think, at the moment, especially in recent months in terms of early life ethics. Questions like this, abortion law madness. This is, of course, an English or British newspaper saying Northern Ireland, it's crazy, it's madness, what's really going on? And behind that and the recent uh, issues in the court, which are still playing out in some level, the Northern Ireland uh, judgment that Northern Ireland law was incompatible with human rights. But if you read the the bottom, the smaller 
uh, subtext of that, it says NI Attorney General considers appealing. Well, he has taken that appeal through and so on. David, who's hosting for us, could tell us much more about where th those things are at in law. But notice what it says. It could see women being allowed termination in cases of fatal fetal abnormalities, rape and incest. So those are the key issues that have come to the fore recently. Again, at end of life, this is a few years ago, this gentleman, uh, Tony Nicholson, uh, was in the headlines and he was campaigning for the right to die and the right to have assistance in ending his life. Now, tragically, he's since died. Uh, and uh, he, it says there he won, his ruling to, he won his ruling to bring the case to a higher court, but he didn't win the final ruling in terms of a right to die and has since died. But what was interesting, this is in 2012, is the comments that were there underneath that news piece. So the comments from the public. And you probably can't see them from there, but basically... These are, not ran, these are not selected, these are just the way they came on the screen. So most of the comments that were there were people saying, at the bottom, if this guy is of sound mind, he's got to have the last say on his life and death. Or at the top, good luck, Tony, I hope you achieve your aim of having the right for you to decide when you end any suffering you are experiencing. So the, 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 the sort of groundswell that is there is, of course, he should have the right to choose the circumstances and moment of his death. And that's a few years ago, but this one is just in the last uh, month or so. Uh, another gentleman who is terminally ill, who's bringing a challenge through the legal system uh, to challenge the UK ban on assisted dying. And so this is something that just comes back again and again and again. And we know that as we listen to the, the headlines. Now, why is it that these issues have come to the fore so much in the last few years and, and in our contemporary society? Well, I think there are two sides to this. One is to do with medical developments. There is technology now in the 20th century onwards, now into the 21st century, for so-called safe abortions. You know, going back before that, the medical profession wasn't able to do safe surgery of any kind. And so medical developments have actually allowed what happened then in the second half of the 20th century for abortion to be legalized because it was safer than backstreet abortions. Uh, and then reproductive technologies, of course, have taken off. The ability to assist people in having children, in vitro fertilization and so on. Prolongation of life, people living longer and often living with more chronic illness. And that has increased questions at the end of life. And then, of course, patchy palliative care, both for uh, babies who have severe um, abnormalities, as they're, they're often called, severe diseases, and also for people at the end of their natural life. So there is palliative care that often is excellent, but sometimes it's patchy. And that drives some of these discussions. But there are also big societal changes, reduced support networks. The fact that many more of us live alone for longer or uh, live in nuclear families with fewer children, with fewer societal supports around us, that's a huge social change that's happened for many different reasons. But it helps to drive this issue because people are more likely to be on their own and not have the kind of support around them. And also, of course, changing values. And we've said that the last couple of mornings, this value of autonomy, which I'll come back to, which, as you saw in the earlier examples, lies underneath this. So in abortion, for example, the argument that this is the woman's body and she should have autonomy over her body and what happens in it. She should have the choice. 
At the end of life, you should have the choice. And in the modern society, if you're conditioned to live your life with free choices at every stage, why would you not be allowed a free choice at the time of your death? So autonomy is a huge value. And the language that goes on around these debates reflects these values. So for example, at, at early life, what do we call the, well, I've called it the unborn child. Is it a, an embryo, which is the medical term up to 56, uh, not weeks, I have to change this because I keep putting this slide up, 56 days, okay. <laughs> I think it's a rather long pregnancy. Um, or is it uh, a fetus, which is after the 56th day? Or is it a baby? Language, you see, conditions us as to what we're thinking and talking about here, doesn't it? And the fact that language is so powerful is very much a, another demonstration of the, the, the culture that we live in, where stories, individual stories are very powerful, and language actually conditions how we think about what is true. Is the process of making babies reproduction, that's what it's commonly called nowadays, um, it's reproductive. Well, where does that language come from? That's the language of the factory. Okay, we produce something and we reproduce it. You see, like a conveyor belt. Or is it what it used to be called, if you go back in history, procreation? Which reflects a very different view, doesn't it? Furthering the process of creation that began with a creator. So you see how language even conditions the way we think about this. And when it comes to talking about abortion, some of the official documents about abortion from the royal colleges, the medical associations and so on, use language like it is a medical procedure. Now, what does that mean? Of course, you know, it's a medical procedure when you have your appendix removed or uh, when you have a, an injection of steroids in a joint that's painful or whatever. And this is just another medical procedure for a medical condition. And in fact, the language that's used in some of those documents talks about removing tissue from the womb. Now, that's a very different thing than saying ending the life of a baby and removing it. And so there's, there's a cloud of how language is used around this. Now, I'm not, and please don't be anxious that I will, I'm not one of those people who uses images of abortions and so on to, to shock people. But actually, there is an issue there with, with whether people are really aware and really know and think about what's going on in these procedures, because that tends to be clouded over in some of the discussion. And then end-of-life issues. Again, language, do people commit suicide or take their own life? Now, I'm not arguing that we should always say commit suicide, for example. That could sound very, very hard if you've had that experience in your family. Ending your own life is softer. But of course, it reflects a question of, is this doing something that might be wrong? The commit word suggests that. Or is it just a choice that they've made to end, end their life? And again, what is a good death? Ironically, the word euthanasia literally means good death. Now, I don't, we probably don't think of it as meaning that when we hear the word. But again, language clouds the issue, doesn't it? What is a good death? What makes for a good death? How would you define what a good death is? Now, the images on the screen are, are, are simply images of the first 56 days of human development. So we're going to start at the beginning of life, and then I'll move on to think about the end of life in that order. But these are the, the development of the child in the womb. And obviously, they're not to scale on the screen that you see there. Uh, potential mums don't panic about that at 56 days is this huge thing. But this is... 
the, what they look like. And of course, the, the deceptive thing about a picture like this is that these are, are, are freeze-frame images. If you were watching this process, it is a gradual and continual process that is really quite amazing. Really is. And so by day 56, when scientifically and medically this baby is now called a fetus instead of an embryo, the reason it's called a fetus it's got no basis other than the fact that it now looks like a little baby. You see that on day 56. Before that, it, well, certainly if you go back to day 28 or 26, you wouldn't really know what that was. And before that, it's just a, a, a ball of cells and so on. But the wonderful thing here is that this is a gradual progression of development. Now, when it, when it comes to, to thinking about abortion as an issue, I said earlier that one of the arguments that's made is this is the woman's body and she should have autonomy and free choice over what is happening in her body. But the law consistently recognizes actually that the, the, the life that is inside the body of the mother should have some kind of status and some kind of protection. So it's not quite the case that, that the law looks at this and says, well, there's just one life here. There are two lives. But the question is, this developing life, what rights should it have? Does it have the same right to life that the mother has? Or should it have a lesser right? And at what stage would it have rights and should it be protected? And the law is quite confused over this. So if you're looking at human rights law, effectively human rights law only kicks in at birth. So in, in, in human rights law, there's no clarity. In fact, it's left to individual nations, but the international law around this leaves it to the nations and so leaves it vague. But what is clear in law is that after birth, you're entitled to all of the human rights of an individual. But before birth, that's confused. Abortion law in Britain, for example, recognizes viability. Now, it says 22 weeks on the screen. It's 24 weeks in law that abortions don't normally, aren't normally allowed after that stage for most uh, reasons. Now, viability is around 22 weeks or so. That's the, the, the stage of pregnancy where the baby can survive outside the mother's womb. In another law, which is about the use of embryos, in research and so on, back in the 1980s, they, they set a cutoff at the stage of 15 to 18 days, which is something to do with the development because that's the limit of a point where that embryo could become two people, identical twins, instead of one. And of course, then you've got the question of implantation, which is when the, the, the embryo implants in the womb of the mum and moves into a new phase of development. And some people look at this and say, well, actually, embryos couldn't possibly have the same value as you and me, because in nature, there is natural wastage somewhere between 30 to 70% of embryos don't implant and are lost. Okay, so don't go on to develop into to babies. So, so why would we treat this little ball of cells that may well not implant and not live uh, as something that has significance? So what I'm trying to point out here is that the law is quite confused over this. And there are different ideas about when does this life deserve the kind of protection that you or I would want to have as living, breathing, thinking people. Well, what I'm 
looking for here, and I'm going to talk about this from a Christian perspective later on, but even looking from a scientific perspective, I'm asking the question, when does this developing life become something different than it was before? Okay? So when does it become something genuinely new that it wasn't before? And that isn't viability. It isn't birth. Let's start with that. It isn't birth because, of course, birth can happen at different points. You're given your due date, but as you're probably well aware, that's only an estimate. It's not viability either because that varies. That depends on different factors. White boys are less likely to live from an early age than uh, people of other ethnicity and females. So if you make viability the point, you're making this unequal. And, and then, of course, viability depends on medical technology, doesn't it? So that you get the ironies of a baby of the same age being aborted, and yet in another place, that baby, they're fighting to save its life. So viability doesn't really mark anything distinctively new. These other early age stages of development, the primitive streak and so on, actually, it's not a change from one thing to another. It's a gradual process of development. It's not, you, you know, if you were watching it, you wouldn't be saying that's just become something different. You'd just been saying it's got a bit bigger and it's, it's, it's changed shape and it's, it's this gradual process. Implantation, yes, there is a difference in how that baby's life is nurtured, but there's not a difference in what it is, okay? Because from word one, day one, the, the, the energy that that baby needs to grow comes from one place only, and it's not the dad. The dad provides some DNA, but it's the mum who provides the energy in the egg, okay? The, the energy for that baby to start growing comes from the mum until that baby, in the normal, hopeful case of events, implants in the womb, and now the mum nurtures it in a different way and continues to sustain its life. Now, the fact that, and to be honest, we don't know the right percentage. It could be anywhere from 30 to 70. That's a huge range. But the fact that many embryos don't make it to implanting in the womb doesn't mean that it would be right for us then to say, well, we'll stop more of them doing that. Do you see what I mean? I mean, the fact that many people die in road traffic accidents does not make it right for me to run over a pedestrian who annoys me. And, and forgive me if that sounds facetious, but we recognize that instinctively, that intentionally causing something is different ethically than what happens in nature. So many of those embryos that don't implant, it's probably because they have uh, impairments or something that's wrong with it, uh, as well as to do with the condition of the mum's womb. So where do we go to? Well, really where this is going to is right back to fertilization, day one. When the egg and the sperm unite and you have something that is genuinely new. It's not an arbitrary point. It is a fixed point. It's clearly distinguishable. Now, there's a 20-hour period uh, between the, the sperm going into the egg and the DNA fusing. And you might argue something's going on there. And until the two fuse, you don't have something new. But basically, once those two fuse, there is something clearly distinguishable. We can see it down a microscope. We can see that something is different and new. And what you have as a result is a genetically and physically distinct life. That is scientifically indisputable. Genetically, that is no longer a cell of the mother's body. It has its own DNA, its own fingerprint. 
genetically speaking. So it, and the amazing thing, I do find this amazing, is that that life, that genetic combination has never, as far as we know, existed in the history of the world before. It is something genuinely new. It is physically distinct. Yes, it's only separated by the cell membrane, which is a thin, thin lining, but it is physically distinct from the mother's body. And as it develops and grows, it remains physically distinct. In other words, it is not a cell or part of her body. It is a separate entity, a separate life that is hosted in her body. So the idea that this is just an issue of her bodily autonomy is medically, scientifically wrong. Now that in itself doesn't mean that this life should have the same rights that you and I have. But we have to recognize it is a distinct physical genetic life. So... Um, it begins a process of development that in the natural course of events continues on if it's not interrupted. And it's not just me saying that. This is something that, that embryologists, as they call the people who research this and teach about it, recognize. It's a new genetically distinct human organism. It's the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. It's a change in kind, not just a degree of development, which all the other points are, you see. You've got something genuinely new. So is there an alternative to that? Again, this one just saying that all that life needs is nurture in order to grow. Well, what's the alternative? One alternative that could be suggested is actually self-awareness. And in fact, some ethicists are saying this is where we should draw the line and give people rights. Self-awareness, when you become aware that you are socially distinct from your parents, and that's generally measured by the ability of a baby to look in the mirror and see that it's themselves, not just a baby, okay? Not try to see, interact with it as another entity, but actually that's me. So self-awareness, when does that happen? A year, 18 months, it depends how you measure it. Certainly months after birth. And so some ethicists say, well, actually, we should allow infanticide, not just abortion of babies up to term, but infanticide because human rights should depend on the self-awareness of the individual. Now, that's not mainstream, but it's certainly argued for. And I'm going to say to you that I think it's logical. Because what we're really asking here is what makes for, per for human personhood. Is human personhood and is the value of a human life something that is intrinsic to that person because they are human? Or is it something that depends on an ability that they have? Self-awareness or some other ability or on uh, a, a quality that they have or on an achievement or on a potential to develop that they have? Now, when you translate that, of course, into to people who are outside the womb, you're asking questions about disability. Would that disqualify you for the right to life? Or if you lost your self-awareness through progressive dementia, for example, would you lose your right to life? Now, some of the ethicists say, no, you shouldn't because you used to have it. So we, we recognize that you had it and so you can retain that right. But, but the fundamental question is, why do we recognize the right to life? Why do we recognize a life as being sacred or having the right to be protected? Now, of course, when it comes to the debate on abortion, as I said earlier, it's the hard cases that are, that are coming before the legislators at the moment. 
rape, incest, sexual crime. How do we approach those issues? Well, there are no easy answers because you can't undo what has been done. There is a horrific crime that has been done and there is a result of that if a pregnancy results. Those are very difficult cases, but there are two innocents. I might say, although that's maybe pushing it too far, two victims in the sense, if there is a rape, there is the woman who is clearly a victim, but in this case where there's a pregnancy, the child is innocent of the circumstances of its conception. And if we're saying that this unborn child is an individual who has a right to life, well, they are going to grow up with those circumstances of their conception and with an absent father, perhaps, with all that goes with that. In some sense, they're too a victim of the crime of the man. Current law, of course, already protects the life of the mother in these difficult situations. Abortion can happen where the mother's life is at risk. And so the case for a change in law only really makes sense if you're saying that that life in the womb doesn't have the same right as the life of the mother. Do you see? It doesn't have the same value. However difficult the circumstances of conception, once the baby is conceived, it's there. You can't get rid of it. You can't undo that. So an abortion doesn't undo the problem. And the question becomes, well, what is this life? And what rights should it have? And do we try and support this woman who's going through a horrific time? So what I'm trying to say there is that difficult as this is, and emotive as this is, it doesn't remove the question of what value does this unborn life have? Similarly with fetal abnormalities, the Abortion Act in England talks about the potential for abortion on this basis, but it talks about substantial risk but it, and serious handicap. And it's likely in Northern Ireland those would be the kind of things people would talk about. Not handicap nowadays, but disability. But what is substantial? There's no legal definition of that. What is serious handicap or disability? Again, no definition. So at a very practical level, it might sound like, well, if this child cannot live, then, then why put the mum through the rest of the pregnancy and all that goes with that? But the questions become, what percentage of chance that it can't live? Or how long could it live for? You see, you're making a judgment about the length of life, the quality of life, what level of disability. And so you enter into a minefield of how you could ever possibly define those things. But those questions, of course, lead us on to big questions. Again, no easy solution. There's other practical questions. But they lead us on to big questions about how long a life is a good life. When does development end? If development is a gradual process from day one up until birth, it doesn't end at birth. If you watch your children or grandchildren, they keep on developing. But who of you in this room has stopped developing? Well, I have physically, I'm afraid, okay? I've been on the downward slide since my 20s, late 20s probably, as have those of you who are older than that. But am I still developing in other ways? I hope so. Mentally, socially, intellectually, character, all of these things that have potential for development throughout life, don't they? So human development is this gradual process that carries on throughout life. How long a future life is worth protecting? If you're thinking about the potential of abortion for a, a, a child that has a disability or a life-limiting condition, how long would you want it to be able to live for before you would say, actually, no, we will protect this life? 
an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year, 10 years, 20 years? So you see where we get into this question of how long a life is worth living? How long a life guarantees that person some protection in law? And what kind of life is worth living? So these are exactly the same questions, of course, that come in at the end of life issues, aren't they? And when it comes to ending lives, we could think about a spectrum of ways that people's lives can end, from murder, which is could be called involuntary euthanasia. You haven't chosen to be killed. I've decided to kill you, and so I will, I will murder you. Now, our law would say that's wrong, and we would say, of course, I think that's wrong. But then what about non-voluntary euthanasia? You haven't consented to it because you're not able to, but you haven't not consented because you're not able to say that either. Would that be acceptable? Well, most people would still say no. What about voluntary euthanasia? Now here, you've exercised your autonomy. You've made a choice. You've, you've asked to have your life ended. Would that be acceptable for someone to end your life in that situation? And then the step beyond that assisted suicide, now you're going to end your life, but somebody will assist you to do that. A doctor or a family member, a doctor maybe prescribe drugs that will make sure that it, it goes smoothly and painlessly and so on. Would that be acceptable? Well, in law at the moment, the law draws the line there that that is not legal, although there is a public interest test for prosecution. So there are cases where maybe a family member has assisted somebody, but looking at that situation, it's clear there was no coercion, there was compassion, there was love. Uh, and the person was felt driven to this, then there would not be a prosecution. So although it's, it's illegal in the, in the UK, there's a recognition that these cases are complex. And so there may not be prosecution. But then, of course, suicide, where you don't need assistance to take your own life. What about withdrawal of treatment, where rather than actively ending a life, you say, no, I don't want any more treatment. And then, of course, double effect, which is where something that a doctor does to ease your pain inadvertently, not by their design, causes your death. Now, these are a spectrum of issues. But asking the question, where would we draw the line as to what is should be legal? The line at the moment is between suicide and assisted suicide. Suicide is no longer a criminal offense. It used to be. That sounds a bit ironic, but it was, it is no longer, but assisted suicide still is. Now, of course, if you're saying, well, autonomy is the key value, which I've said our society says, then the natural place for the line to go is to say, well, you have a right to commit suicide and maybe to be assisted in that, although there's all sorts of practical questions as to how you would ever know whether that's a free choice and so on and maybe voluntary euthanasia, and you can see why the law in some countries is going that way, and the pressure is for it to go that way in the UK. Now, I don't want to talk more about the law in that, but I do want to say this, that when it comes to the arguments about the end of life, there are two values that tend to come in and how people argue for assisted dying, assisted suicide, and euthanasia. The right to decide autonomy. So I've mentioned that already, but this is problematic. Whose autonomy? Who is free to choose? The doctor? The patient? The relatives? And what is a free decision? How do you ever know if somebody's decision is free of pressure? If somebody is asking for their life to end, is it because they feel like they're a burden to other people? 
Is it because they're depressed? Are they able to make a clear, free decision? Is it because somebody is pressurizing them in the way the questions are asked or for financial reasons even? But then, of course, from a Christian point of view, we might ask, do we actually have the right? Are there limits to our autonomy? And then compassion for suffering is the other strong argument. How can we expect people to live with such suffering? But the question becomes, who's suffering as well? Is it the suffering of the individual or of the relatives in that situation? What degree or kind of suffering would we need to recognize to say, actually, that life is no longer worth living? And of course, there is an alternative as well, isn't there? And I said earlier that it's patchy, but where there is excellent palliative care, end-of-life care, there's very strong evidence to say that people are much less likely to ask for their life to be ended because, of course, they're receiving the kind of care that helps to manage their pain or make it manageable for them. But what I want to say about this is actually both of these values, in a sense, reflect the legacy of Christianity. The value of compassion, the idea that it is good to feel compassion on others when they're suffering is a Christian virtue. And even the idea of autonomy, recognizing the value of the individual, came in many ways from Christianity. These reflect a legacy of a Christian value system. And so it's good that the debate centers on these issues although the Christian perspective on them might be different than our society now. But it does raise the question that once you lose any Christian perspective underlying your worldview, your your values, why would you continue to value compassion or the, the, the autonomy, the independence of a person anyway? But I just want to say they, they, they reflect a Christian legacy. So, we said yesterday that there are certain underlying values behind these issues. And the value of autonomy is grounded in a story of life that goes like this. You came from nowhere. You're the random product of a random process of evolution and so on. You just happened to be born. You didn't choose where you were born. But here you are. What's the best life that you can live? Well, ultimately, you're going nowhere. So the best life you can have is the most fulfilled and happiest life that you can have in the present. And how do you get that? You get that by making free choices. The worst thing against happiness is when your choices aren't free. They're forced upon you. And figuring out who you are, well, you figure out who you are by by your inner experience and feelings of life. We saw that particularly yesterday with sexuality and gender. And so being true to yourself in the choices you make is the ultimate virtue. You see, that's the path to happiness and fulfillment for as long as you can have it. And obviously in that situation, you want the final choice about death as well. Because once the happiness goes or the fulfillment or the hope for the future goes, why continue that life? So you can see how these issues make sense, doesn't it? And then at the beginning of life, if you don't recognize the right of the baby, then you're saying, well, look, the woman, of course, should have the freedom to make her choice in that situation. How do we think Christianly about this issue of autonomy that lies across this? How do we be faithful? Well, a Christian view, as I said yesterday, is a biblical view. 
And Scripture speaks in different ways. And we could look at this if we had time about how the poetry of Scripture in the Psalms describes the beauty of life and God's sovereignty over it. We could look at the narratives. We could think of John the Baptist and Jesus meeting when they're in the womb and John the Baptist kicking in the womb and what does that mean about life before birth. But we want to think about the gospel the big story of Scripture. How does that shape our thinking on these issues? Where did I come from? I was created by God. Where am I going to? I'm going to glory through Christ. So what is life in the middle? What is the goal of life? It's not about my happiness or fulfillment, but it is about becoming like Christ. And that's a lifelong process, isn't it? And how do I become like Christ? By repenting of sin, by believing, and by obeying. And who am I? I am beautiful in dignity, created by God, but I'm also messed up because of sin and the fall. Whether that expresses itself in physical disability or in character traits or in struggles that I have in my internal emotional life. And so the path to Christ-likeness in this model is to recognize sin, to repent of it, and to live faithfully. As I said yesterday, I have a Lord, and that makes all the difference. Christ is Lord over me. Autonomy has its limit because I want to obey him. It's not my own law, my own rule over me, but Christ's rule over me. So as a faithful Christian, I ask the question, when did my life begin? When did you begin? Well, physically speaking, you began at conception, fertilization, this new genetic identity. But did God know you before that? Yes. Because God had his eternal plan to create the world, to create human beings, and he had his love for his people before the foundation of the world. So the story doesn't even begin. Your story doesn't just begin with conception. It begins in eternity. And where is your ending? Well, it's not just when this lump of cells finally stops living, is it? It goes beyond that, the hope of glory, as we've been hearing. So the gospel redefines these things because the gospel, I think of it as having five movements, this great story of scripture. It begins with creation. God rules. And God created us with special dignity. Human life is sacred because we're created in the image of God's. And that begins right back in Genesis 1, created male and female in his likeness and given this responsibility to be fruitful and multiply and to rule and to have dominion and to reflect God as the image of God to his creation. Now, of course, I can't do that alone. Can you? No. We're not called to do this alone as isolated individuals. We're called to do this together as human beings. And so we don't do that together as human beings. How do we reflect God? We don't do it by picking out the strongest and the best of us and saying there's the most godlike man or woman that I know, the superhero person. We do it by living in a community of people where the weak are honored and cared for and the weak have the same dignity that the strong have because that is the likeness of God. Do you see what I'm saying? So we have individual dignity as part of a community of people and that dignity doesn't come from your ability or the contribution you make. 
It comes from what you are as a human being. God rules, but we rebelled. So there is imperfection, alienation, disease, and death in the world. But what does that mean for human personhood? Are we still the image bearers of God? Well, yes, because in Genesis 5, after the fall, it tells us that we are. And it tells us this, that God created man in his likeness, and he created the male and female, and when they were created, he called them man. But back, or still in that chapter, it says, Adam had a son in his own likeness. So what does it mean to be human? It means to be a descendant of the first human beings, genetically descended from them. Which is why I believe that that new genetic individual from fertilization is one of us. It's human. And therefore, it is one of us. The fact that it's just a lump of cells means nothing in terms of its value. It's part of the human race, part of humanity. And the story continues, and again in Genesis 9, human life is still sacred because we are still created to be the image of God. So from a Christian point of view, I'm dedicated to saying your value does not depend on what you can do, your ability, your contribution, your potential. And so it's not diminished when your ability decreases with age or illness, or your potential decreases because you've got fewer days ahead of you than you have behind you. Nor is it diminished by whether you are wanted or not. The irony of where abortion thinking is now is that because it's all about autonomy, the baby should be protected if it's wanted by the mother. And if it's not wanted, it shouldn't. So it's not that the baby has a right in its own self, but it depends on the autonomy of another person. But your value does not depend on whether somebody else wants you or not. Biblically speaking. Of course, biblically speaking, too, it's worth thinking about death. Why do we die? Well, we die because of sin. But if you read how it's described in Genesis 3, it says, God barred them from the Garden of Eden so that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life and live forever. So death, yes, is a judgment because of sin, but it's also a sign of the mercy and grace of God. It would not be good for you or for me to live indefinitely the way you are now. Your body isn't up to it, for starters. But also, you're going to be struggling with sin for eternity if that's the case. But God has brought death into human experience to force us to think about ultimate truth and our need of him. It doesn't make death easy. It doesn't mean death is a good thing, but it does mean that death becomes the pathway to resurrection and to a new body and a new life without the struggles of sin. So from a Christian point of view, death is an enemy, but it's a defeated enemy, but it's also not the end of the story. So we say death is swallowed up in victory with the resurrection of Christ and the hope that that brings. And we stand at the graveside and we shout, oh death, where is your victory? Even as the tears run down our face. It's painful, but it's not the end. And that changes everything. And so we look within that story at God's design for procreation, God's good design of the context of marriage, of genetic inheritance, which is so important in scripture from one generation to the next, of motherhood and the importance of it, of the choice to try to have children but not choosing which children were given. So we don't uh, objectify children. We're not interested in designer babies. 
because we receive our children as a gift from God. We welcome them as strangers and we learn from them just as we nurture them. It's a good design. God redeems forgiveness and hope available through Jesus Christ. That's so important in these issues, isn't it? Where we have failed looking back that we seek his forgiveness and we know hope. And we respond. We live a life of faithfulness. And we recognize that suffering has potential. And this is really tricky pastorally. But scripture says a lot about it, doesn't it? That suffering has potential both to grow character in us and also to display God's power in our weakness. We could talk a whole lot about that in itself. And lastly, God restores. Where's the story going to? It's hope. It's glory. It's a future. It's the present help of the Spirit. It's not just pie in the sky when you die. It's steak on the plate while you wait. All right? It's the help of God now, and it's the hope of glory in the future. So yes, we struggle. Yes, we wrestle. Yes, we doubt. But we're waiting for the glorious return of Christ. And that changes everything. And so we recognize limits on our autonomy. We are not free to make whatever choice. We call to go back to First Peter on a father who judges impartially. And the world around us doesn't get it. And they're surprised that we don't join in and go with their values. And they ridicule us because of it. But they too will give account, Peter says, to the one who will judge the living and the dead. So human autonomy is not the ultimate value. So how do we respond in the world? And then we'll take questions after. If folks need to go to get children, I'll let you go in a minute. But we'll take questions after that. I'm happy to stay. What is a good society? Well, a good society, and I think the, the, actually the research as to what is good for children backs this up exactly what scripture says, that it is good where children are nurtured within marriage, committed marriage, monogamous marriage. The research is less clear about the difference between heterosexual and homosexual marriage, but certainly the commitment of marriage. But there is a lot of evidence that for boys particularly, having a father figure is incredibly helpful. So I'm going to suggest on that basis, having one parent of each sex is the best pattern because both types of children can have the role model they need. So God's design is good. That's good for society. Parents who regard their children as a gift from God, not a possession for them to own, but a gift for them to care for and nurture and learn from and raise in the fear of God. The weak are honored. The vulnerable are protected and cared for. That's a Christian virtue, isn't it? time and time again in scripture. And of course, laws that should promote what is good and hold what is wrong to justice. That's a good society. And Christians should be speaking for that kind of society. We honor the authorities to go back to Peter. We do that by submitting to the law, but not always obeying and certainly speaking truth. So let's pray for those Christians who have a role in speaking into that like David. And let's pray for those who are called into politics and it can help to shape those values. Let's speak clearly. But perhaps even more importantly, we love the brotherhood. So in the church, we've got to embody a different kind of society. A society that doesn't just pay lip service to honoring the poor and the vulnerable, but is dedicated in love to them. Where there are no lonely people. Where there are no people who, who, who don't have friendship and companionship. Where there are no people who don't have a, a listening ear 
and a comforting hand, where there are no unwanted pregnancies because we want them. And there are no girls or women in a crisis of pregnancy who don't know where to turn to and can't find the support that might just make it possible in their mind for them to carry this baby to term, where there are no disabled babies, children, adults, or older people who are excluded or left in the margins. That's what the church ought to be, and we have a bit of work to do, don't we? But loving the brotherhood includes that. Keeping the generations together, there's another big one. Not fragmenting off in young and old. And as we honor everyone in the wider society, we honor the unborn, which means protecting embryos, and that has implications in issues like IVF and in so-called contraception, which I'm happy to talk about and, and uh, I've written about online, as to how does it work? Does it stop the embryo being made or does it actually stop implantation? That should matter to us if we think life begins at conception. And we honor women, compassionate support in crisis pregnancies. That's why I love Both Lives Matter, that tagline. And we've got some of that literature here. If you want to to take that, please do. But it's a campaign that's saying, actually, in these debates about early life, both lives matter. It's not just the baby at the expense of the woman, but nor is it just the woman without the baby. Both matter. Compassionate support for women. And honoring the dying honoring them with excellent palliative care, with companionship, with walking with them through those last days, with recognizing advanced planning. So I encourage you to think that through as you think of your own end of life. What kind of care do you want? It's good. That's good stewardship of your life to talk about that with your family, to maybe put your wishes in writing, to appoint somebody with power of attorney who can help uh, manage things, who you trust in a loving relationship but also withdrawal of treatment. Because as Christians we recognize that death is not the end, we should be quite open to saying there are times when it is right to say, no, enough is enough. My days, I've seen out my days, the time has come. Now that's not, that's only at the end of life when death is coming, but saying actually I don't need to push this to the end. I'm not driven to try and stay alive as long as possible at all costs. But withdrawing treatment is very different than actively ending life. You withdraw the treatment when it's either not working or when the burden is too great for that person to bear the implications of that treatment. And there are times when that is right and that is good. And it is actually a choice for life, not to end life. It's a choice for the best quality of life in your last days to say, I want free from that so I can focus on relationship or I can just see out those days in peace. But as Christians, that's a positive thing because we're going towards resurrection and glory. Now, I know those are very personal issues for some of you. I'm happy to talk about that. But I just want to finish by saying a good death. Euthanasia, what is a good death? A good death is a death. A good death comes at the end of a good life, doesn't it? And it's like the Apostle Paul said. Being able to say, I'm ready to be poured out. The time has come for my departure. I fought the good fight. I've run the race. It was a struggle, believe me. It was a fight, but I fought it and I kept going and I've trusted in the Lord. And now I'm entrusting myself to the Lord, the righteous judge who has glory in store for me. That's what makes for a good death. So as we think of our own mortality, let's think about the lives we live now and how they're dedicated to the glory of God and to Christ likeness. 
okay, folks who need to get children, please do go and retrieve them. But for those of you who want to take this further, please take down the web address. Uh, you can email me. You can send in questions. I'd love to meet up with you or come to your churches or other contexts to talk about these kinds of issues. Um, but please, if you need to leave, go. If you have questions, please just raise your hand and uh, let's engage with, with some of those as we have a bit more time. Any, any questions or, or comments or feedback? Yes, thank you. Yeah. So, yes. So the, the question, just for the sake of the recording, is about patchy palliative care and the personal experience that, that the lady is asking and maybe others of us have had where that hasn't been what it should have been, particularly for progressive neurological diseases uh, and where people maybe end up in a nursing home um, where they're with much older people uh, and care is not as good. How can we practically respond as Christians? I think we can volunteer. I know that there are opportunities to volunteer. I used to work in the Northern Ireland Hospice and I know that volunteers are a very important part of what they offer, and they can care for folks with neurological diseases. Marie Curie is, is difficult because it's focused on, on cancer, um, particularly. So I think services are better than they used to be, but they are still patchy. We can volunteer. I think if your calling is in medicine or nursing, you could seek out those aspects of it. The hospice movement is grounded on, on Christian principles. It is um, has a holistic view and spiritual care is very important in that setting. But, you know, and, and I'm thankful that Christians have done so much in that, but we could do more. I think churches could do more to come alongside families, to relieve some of the burden of, you know, constantly being with, to help with travel, to help with care, to, to make sure that folks have support. Because th that journey, as you'll know personally, is a very tough, tough journey. Um, and it's sad to hear that it isn't what it should be. So I think volunteering, going into professions where we can do that. Maybe some of you, if you have the resource, the money, and the entrepreneurial skills, could think about setting up additional institutions. Why not? With a, with a really strong Christian value. And if folks want to think about that, I'd love to encourage you. I don't think I've got the gifts to do that. But, but I think people could do that. And you, you could probably really help them know how to do it. So we can chat afterwards about that, but thanks for sharing about your personal experience too. I mean, the, the church has such an opportunity in these areas, particularly with the aging population. I think it's one of the reasons why, as I said, the fragmentation between old and young in the church is one of Satan's most effective ploys in this current moment because one of the greatest mission fields is the older population. Uh, for several reasons. One, it's often the time when people are thinking about death and so on. And actually many people in that stage become open again to the gospel, even if they've been closed to it throughout life, uh, because there's such opportunities to show love and compassion and honor, especially for those who are older, as scripture expects us to. So it's a tragedy that our churches are fragmenting on generational lines, and we've got to solve that too. Yes. So, so the question is about uh, the, the, the very sad story that's been played out in the media with Charlie Gard. And I suppose the first thing I would say is that just things being played out in the media is never, never easy. Uh, I don't claim to understand that story fully. Um, but I do realize that within it there was confusion. There was maybe poor communication at times. Uh, and of course, communication is so important in these situations. There was also the, the appearance of hope from America that really, I think, if the, if the doctor in America had understood better, may have not have been held out in the same way. 
Um, but you know what I what I appreciate about that case and what I think that case emphasizes to me, it is absolutely right that this should be taken so seriously, even the case of one individual that the courts were involved. I know it sounds awful to take it to court and so on, but actually the fact that the courts are involved shows how much our society still places value on one life. Tragically, it doesn't do that with life before birth. And there's a, there is a great irony in that. Um, and I think, yes, withdrawal of life support, withdrawal of treatment is often the right choice in those situations if life cannot be sustained independently. So it's one thing to say we'll sustain life if there's hope that that child can then live beyond that. But in this case, I think that was not there. Uh, and so it was the compassionate and right response. But that's not, withdrawing the treatment is not the same as saying we would have actively ended that life. It's saying, and I don't like this phrase, let nature take its course, because of course, I, I don't like to call it nature. It's, it's distorted nature. It's nature distorted by the fall. But the reality is um, compassion and compassionate support and good hospice care in a case like that is still the right, the right thing to do. But it's not that the life was worth living, wasn't worth living. I would avoid saying that because every moment of his life counted. And every moment of his life was worth something and I'm sure meant something to his parents who loved him. Uh, and also in God's eternal scheme, he was loved and known by God. And that gives his life significance, no matter how short it is and how much suffering he may have had. Although it was very unclear whether he was suffering or not. So is that, that's a bit of an answer in a difficult case as far as I understand it. But those cases do illustrate, you know, we would want that in our family, wouldn't we, that this is taken seriously, that nobody can quickly make those decisions or rashly. Um, and, and so here's the value of a life. And I would like to see that for every individual. Okay. So the, the question, yes, no, the question is about morphine and uh, similar painkillers, opioids, which uh, can obviously in overdose levels cause death because they inhibit uh, breathing and so on. Um, and the, their use, this question of double effect, if they're being used to, to treat pain, is it right that actually if they're put at the right level, they don't hasten death? Yes, it is right. Um, in, I mean, in palliative care, generally you gradually increase these doses. And the more pain your body is in, the more morphine it can tolerate. Um, uh, and so people in severe pain and at end of life can often tolerate doses of morphine that would probably kill me if I received them. Um, so, you know, sometimes people look at this and think they're really, they're increasing this to a very high level, but it is genuinely to treat the pain. I think it's incredibly difficult because I've, I've heard debates about this where people say, but doctors do this all the time, you know, are helping people die uh, at the end of life because of morphine doses. In my experience in the hospice, it wasn't like that. You know, we certainly weren't blasé uh, or careless with it. I couldn't say with hand on heart that there weren't patients of mine whose death might have been hastened by the morphine. That's possible. But we certainly never gave them the morphine with that intention. Uh, nor did we just sort of rank, ramp it up by a huge dose to, to thinking, oh, this will see them off. Um, it was for good care. But that's, those issues only really, I mean, the issue of double effect really only should come in in the very terminal phase where you're talking about hours or days of life left. And in that situation, I think it is right to seek comfort 
Um, and there should be, in, in the right, in good situations, there should have been a process of, of preparing for death coming up to that, if you understand what I mean. So if there is a situation where a doctor, where the dose may have hastened it, I'm not even sure how you would prove that it did. Um, but it, in my experience, certainly in Northern Ireland, it was not widespread that that was happening. And as Christians, I don't think we need to be fearful of that. I think we can, you know, we can talk about it with the doctor and so on. But I think it's right that we seek to control pain, nausea and other symptoms and distress in those very terminal hours. But it's really only when, when death is, is imminent, um, not months when you've got months to go or years to go. You, you see what I mean? So it's in a different category. Is that helpful in what, what you're saying? Or what you're thinking? Any other questions? And and yes. So the the question about is about abortion. When a when a woman decides to go ahead with abortion, do the doctors explain to her what it entails and and the implications further on in life? I don't have direct experience of that. I've never worked in that specialty, and clearly I've worked in Northern Ireland in medicine. But I have listened to and spoken to women who have been through that process, and I think. It is patchy. I, I've certainly heard people who testify that they went and really they were encouraged down that route and there was very little conversation. I think there's certainly very little detailed explanation of what the procedure itself involves. Um, and then the language in the documentation talks about tissue and so on rather than actually what does this look like. I think that's why some of the anti-abortion groups do use those shocking images. I, as I said, that's I don't like that most importantly because to me those are images of dead people and I think they deserve some dignity in death but I can understand why they they feel they want to do it because there's so little clarity about what this really is it's all clouded in in the language so I suspect it varies from place to place as to how well things are explained but it raises a question for me as a medic Informed consent is so important and is so much part of autonomy in decision making in healthcare. How is it truly informed consent if the person isn't actually talked through what this really involves? So I suspect in a lot of cases that isn't. The question of the impact down the line, again, I think that's going to be patchy. In the, in the best cases, there should be counselling and support, but often, again, based on stories that, that, I, that women have told, uh, often that is not well done and it, it tends to be just the, the assumption that this is a good choice you've made and the right thing that, that you're doing. Um, but yes, I mean, as I said, in any circumstances, abortion does not undo the pregnancy. And so whether you go for through with abortion or not, there's still that question of then, what did I have and how did I feel? But this is where law really matters because it does affect behavior. You know, once options are open to people, and we've seen this very clearly with the 100,000 figure, which has been upheld recently by, uh, against complaints to the Adverse, uh, Advertising Standards Agency, that we estimate there would be, there are 100,000 people at least alive in Northern Ireland today who would not be alive if it had been, if we'd had the abortion laws that England has. Uh, and so changes in law do affect people's behavior. When the option is open and you're in a tough situation and you can't imagine how you can get through this and there's not adequate support, you know, and you're not coming at this from a Christian point of view, or even if you are, it often isn't an easy choice for women. Um, and so we need to give that compassionate support that makes an alternative possible. But I think we also need to speak, think clearly and speak clearly about the law and how good Northern Ireland law is in this area.
where it gets the right, the right recognition that the woman's life, where the woman's life is under threat, her life should be preserved, even if that means ending the life of the baby. That doesn't make abortion good or even right, but it does mean that you've, you've got that tough wisdom of Solomon. You can't save both lives, save the mother's life. But in other circumstances, the, the, the baby's life should be preserved. And that's where our law stands, and I think that's right. Is that help to answer your question, or why? Do, or sorry, doctors refuse to do it. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, doctors. Of course, this is one of the inequalities in healthcare on the professional side that doctors have been very good at standing up for a conscience clause and so on, and not having to do procedures. Often that same clause isn't there for allied health professionals, nurses and so on. They don't generally have the same protection. Uh, that's to do with the way doctors negotiated their involvement in the NHS historically. Um, but yes, you, you know, these things, uh, as I said earlier, professional martyrdom is becoming, I mean, for me, the medical profession is fundamentally about sustaining and enhancing life. And it should never have gone down the line of accepting responsibility for ending life. And it shouldn't do it at the end of life issues in the future. It changes what the medical profession is. I think it changes the whole ethos and values behind that. If the state wanted to say we should have legal abortions, they should have set up a separate service to service, not even that, even that word, but a separate group of people to do it. So I worry for my profession because the reality is history tells us doctors and I know they're greatly regarded, and they should be, and I, I'm very thankful for Christian doctors who serve God in that way. I no longer do that. But doctors are not the guardians of public morality. In the right circumstances, they act as unethically as anybody else. Uh, and law tells us that opinion in the medical profession shifted you know, with this change in the law and with the change in cultural values around abortion, and it will probably do the same. So even though now the majority of doctors are opposed to assisted dying, physician-assisted dying, they don't want to be involved in that. If the law changes, there will be doctors who will provide it, and it will become normalized in the medical profession as well. So, I, I mean, I say that to say it's up to us as a groundswell of public opinion. But, of course, how do we change that? Well, what I'm concerned about is to say, as the church, let's be faithful and let's embody that alternative society that we should be. Let's speak about this, but let's speak primarily about the gospel because people will not understand why euthanasia or, or certainly why assisted suicide is wrong if they don't understand that there is a Lord. Do you, do you see what I mean? So the gospel, it's bringing, bringing it back to Jesus and to this great true story of life uh, of the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel and seeing people come to Christ is then when they can begin to understand why life should be ordered the way it is. Yeah, I know time's well and truly up, David. I, he's very graciously and gently telling me that. And, I, and folks, do feel free to leave. I could talk about this all day, and I'm very happy to engage with you afterwards. Just to remind you again, we do have, if the pastoral support folks just wave their hand, you may not have time to see them now, but they'd be very happy to arrange a time to see you in the prayer tent anytime. If there are personal issues, I'm going to be here. Please come and chat. Thank you very much.